worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. Father, that song just hits different. And that, Father, it's, it's so often the case that we find ourselves just surrounded by the world or, or inundated with suffering or, or swamped with worry or just tired. And so, Father, often we must compel ourselves to, to worship. And, Father, we know that we can't give you what you deserve. Father, you deserve every breath from us to be praised. You deserve every thought in our mind to be obedient to you. You deserve every action that we perform to be done to your glory. And Father, we fall so short, and yet you still love us. So Father, we pray that your love and your mercy continue into our time with your word. Father, this is a heavy topic, but Father, every topic that involves you and your gospel is heavy and important. And Father, we just pray that you open our hearts to your word. We thank you that Jesus is coming back. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. You can be seated. All right, let's continue. Let's continue together in the book of Mark, Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should see one underneath the chair in front of you. We would encourage you to open that one up with us. Uh, you need to check everything that I say with the Word of God. Uh, you're not interested in my opinion. It's, kind of a, it's an interesting day to say that. Um, but you're not interested in my opinion today. Uh, my opinion is not gospel. The gospel is gospel. My opinion is not the Word of God. The Word of God is the Word of God. And so we want you to see what I'm saying. You want, we want you to see the things that we claim to be true are true in the Word of God. So Mark chapter 13, called the Olivet Discourse. Olivet Discourse. Uh, did y'all eat your Wheaties this morning? Hope you ate your Wheaties this morning. We're going to do some heavy lifting. We're going to do some heavy lifting this morning. You Ready? The Olympics are over. All the heavy lifting is now taking place here and not in Tokyo. Does that sound all right? Heavy lifting. Shouldn't be afraid of heavy lifting. That's how our spiritual muscles grow strong. That's how our spiritual muscles grow strong. So we're going to do some heavy lifting together. Uh, today is the day. We're in Mark 13. As we said, uh, when we started, when we entered into Mark 13, we said that Mark 13 is one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture to interpret. We said that Mark 13, because it's one of the most difficult passages to interpret, Mark 13 is also one of the most debated passages in all of Scripture. And because it's the most, one of the most debated passages in all of Scripture, it can also be the most divisive passage in all of Scripture. But we're not going to do that today, right? We're not about divisiveness. We're about unity. Unity, unity, unity. Above almost anything, unity. But it can be divisive. As we said a few weeks ago, the end times is about Jesus bringing back, coming back to bring peace to his people that his people love to fight about. Let me say that again, because that's hilarious. The end times is about Jesus coming back to bring peace to his people that his people love to fight about. But we're not going to do that around here. We're not going to do that around here. We're not going to do that because we have a tool belt. Remember our tool belt? We're bringing a tool belt into Mark 13, and here are some of our tools. We are not going to be divisive about this. We're going to bring our tool belt. We're going to bring our tools, and the first tool is this. When it comes to reading Scripture, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. What we must know about Jesus Christ and about salvation is plain in Scripture. We don't have to worry that there's some hidden message or hidden code that we must determine before we can know God. The main things in Scripture are plain. And the plain things are the main things. So knowing the details about Jesus coming back 
is not a plain thing. And therefore, it is not a main thing. Are you with me? Okay. The second tool that we bring to Mark 13, and we should bring to all passages of Scripture, is this. The Bible is never wrong. Are you with me? The Bible is never wrong. It is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. God is not a liar. All Scripture is true. Scripture is never wrong. But I can be wrong. Are you with me? We saw Paul writing a message to a church, to a pastor, and he's telling the pastor, please get your people to understand this. We do not quarrel over what's not main and plain. We don't quarrel over what's not main and plain. And the last tool that we're going to bring to Mark 13 that we talked about two weeks ago is this. We avoid, when we come to the Bible, we come to Scripture, when we try to determine what it is saying to the best of our ability, we avoid interpretive anarchy and interpretive tyranny. What does that mean? We don't come to a passage like Mark 13 in anarchy, saying it can mean something to you that's different what it means to me, that's different what it means to the truth, that we all have our own truth when it comes to the Word of God. That's not how the Word of God works. There is one message in Mark 13. There is God's truth in Mark 13. And that's what we want to find. Are you with me? We avoid biblical anarchy. We avoid Biblical tyranny. We also shouldn't show up to church thinking, all right, the pastor's been working on this for weeks now. I'm just going to let him tell me what I should believe about these things. I'm going to turn my brain off, beep boop, turn my brain off, and then whatever Jordan says, or whatever talking uh, head on the TV says, or whatever my favorite celebrity pastor says, that is what I'm going to believe. No, it's somewhere in between. Anarchy and tyranny, where we come to the Word of God and we say, This is true. We say, This is life giving. We say, This shows us the person of Jesus Christ. This shows us the grace and mercy of God towards sinners. I want to understand. And yes, I will take what the pastor says seriously and I will chew on it, but I will not take what the pastor says as gospel, as perfect. But I will listen. But I will do my own work. And so, with that tool belt around us, here's some good news. Jesus is coming back. Isn't that good news? That someday, believers in Jesus will be in the new heaven and new earth that has been ushered in by Jesus coming again. Let me tell you a little bit about this place. This new heaven and new earth will be ever-increasing joy for believers. This new heaven and new earth, there will never be tears again. There will never be pain again. There will never be strife again. There will never be disease again in this place, this new heaven and this new earth that is ushered in by Jesus. And that is great news. That is the main and plain thing. He is coming back. When Jesus returns, the end times, last days, it's called a lot of different things. Uh, It's called the eschaton, it's called a lot of things. But what it means, when we say things like the end times, the last days, what we mean is the last days, the end times, is when Jesus returns to bring heaven and earth and every soul and all things to their final destination. The end times is when Jesus returns to bring everything to their final destination, including you, including you, including me. 
the end times in Scripture, trying to interpret it, is notoriously difficult. It's notoriously difficult for a few reasons. The passages that talk about Jesus' second coming and the end times are notorious for figurative language. Word pictures. Like this in in the book of Revelation. Revelation is all about the end times. Revelation 13.1 says this about the beast. John saw it rise up out of the sea, having seven horns, or seven heads, and ten horns, and upon his horns, ten crowns, and upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. Anybody want to come up here and pick that one apart for us? I don't. Do you see? Figurative language. God is using figurative language to express the truth about when Jesus comes back. But can you see how difficult that is to interpret? It's hard. It's not easy. This kind of fantastic imagery. Another reason that Jesus' second coming is difficult to interpret is because of its liberal use of Old Testament passages. To effectively interpret the passages about the end times, we need to understand the old times. To understand the end times, we need to understand the old times in the Old Testament. And so there's a lot of puzzle pieces that are scattered around. And and our job is to love the pieces because it's the word of God. And and, and it is good to try to put these pieces together because we can't wait for Jesus to return and make everything right once and for all forever. That's going to be glorious. And so we are excited to try to put these pieces together. But we look at it, we go, wow, I'm not quite sure how these fit together when it comes to the second coming But that's okay. One of the reasons that that's okay is that's how it worked the first time Jesus came. In the Old Testament, God's people began receiving from God these puzzle pieces of, of a man coming that will be who will be the Messiah. And he will save his people. And we get all kinds of puzzle pieces about this Messiah, like he'll be born of a virgin. How does that work? Well, that's a puzzle piece, and, and they're trying to put that together. And, and he'll be king. That's great news. He'll be king in the line of David. That's great news. But David calls him Lord. How does that work? He'll be born in Bethlehem. That's great. And he'll be the king of kings and lord of lords. And he will die for his people. And he'll be the suffering servant who is pierced for the sins of his people. And so in the Old Testament, God's people took these puzzle pieces, much like we do about the second coming, and they try to put it together. But once Jesus came, we see how all those pieces fit together in the person of Jesus Christ. And we see that he is the one that God sent And he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And someday every enemy will be under his feet. And he does save his people, but not from puny enemies like the Roman army. He saves his people from the monsters of sin and death and hell. And how did he do that? He did that by dying on the cross. And he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And we see those puzzle pieces all fit together. And so someday... In the new heaven and new earth, let's promise to meet back here someday and we'll see how all these puzzle pieces fit perfectly together. Are you with me? All right. So, to understand Mark 13, we need to also talk about, we need to lay the groundwork, we need to talk about three main views of the end times of Jesus coming back. There are three main views All these views, these three views are held by men and women who believe that the Bible is inerrant. That means perfect. All these views are held by people who believe the Bible is perfect. All these views are held by people who believe the totality of the gospel of Jesus. You can believe one of these three, all of these three views and believe all the main and plain things in Scripture. All three of these main views 
are held by conservative Christians. Not, not, one of them's not a progressive liberal Christian view. All of these are conservative Christian views. All of these views have great strengths and glaring weaknesses. These three views can be held by different people in our church. We are not a church that ascribes to one of these views. You and I can disagree about these puzzle pieces and how they fit together. And that's okay. In fact, we're a Southern Baptist church. In fact, in my study, I saw a debate between three Southern Baptist professors in one of our world-class seminaries, and they all took one of these different views, and they all debated which view was right. And they did so in love and unity and charity, and they taught at the same school. They taught different things, and that's okay. And that's okay. And these three views... These three views are named after their interpretations of the prophesied thousand-year reign of Christ in Revelation 20. Okay? See, I want to tell you, eat your Wheaties this morning, right? Okay. Hang in there. Okay. The first view, and the view that I would bet you have heard most is called premillennialism. That says the thousand-year reign of Christ is literally on the earth, and the return of Christ happens before this millennial reign. This is the most popular position today. Here's the distinguishing features. This is what you're going you're gonna to hear. This is what you're going to be familiar with. You ready? Rapture theology is premillennialism. Have you heard the rapture? Yeah, premillennialism. Tribulation theology is big time in premillennialism. Premillennialism, out of these three views, has the best marketing department. Have you ever read or watched the Left Behind series? Raise your hand if you've heard the Left Behind series. That's premillennialism. They have the, by far the best marketing of the three schools of thought. Premillennialism is held by John MacArthur, John Piper. It was held by early church leader Irenaeus. A second, the second school of thought in the end times is amillennialism. This is the return of Christ began after the, the, the... Let me start over. See how complicated this is? Amillennialism says the millennial reign of Christ began after the resurrection and is spiritual in nature. Jesus is reigning from heaven with the saints now. And someday he will return. But the millennial reign of Christ is now. This is held by Pastor Sam Storms from, from Oklahoma. This was held by Augustine, early church leader. This is held by J.I. Packer. Some of you go, who cares about these guys? Yeah, you might not know them, but if you do, that'll mean something to you. Finally, the last third view, postmillennialism, says that the, thou the thousand year reign of Christ is from heaven, and the reign of Christ from heaven leads the church to triumph by and through the gospel to such an extent that the Great Commission will be successfully fulfilled. Isn't that interesting? Now, that might have got some of us, right? That's very different than the premillennial view. Premillennial view says stuff's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse until Christ comes back. Postmillennialism says the opposite. Things are going to get better and better and better and better until Christ returns. Isn't that interesting? Now, I know we might say, well, man, it's been a bad couple years. How are you going to explain that? Postmillennialists will say, if you take world, world history in 500-year chunks, you see things getting better and better and better for everybody, for most people. You see the Christian church growing and growing and growing from a group of 500 to the largest religion in the world. They'll say things like, sure, Christianity is, might be decreasing in America, but it is exploding in China and Africa. This view was held by Jonathan Edwards, by B.B. Warfield, by R.C. Sproul. 
And here's one view. I said there are three views. I already lied to you. Are you ready? Here's the fourth view. And this is one that I think we should all hold to some extent. There's a view called panmillennialism, which says, I don't know, everything will pan out in the end. Isn't that a nice? Isn't that okay? You can hold, we got, we got one taker right here. You can hold that view and be okay. If you think, I don't want to dive that deep into this stuff right now, that's okay. What we know is that everything will pan out in the end. Amen? Panmillennialism says, every view believes that we will meet Christ in the air when he returns. And a panmillennialist would say, I hold the right to change my view on the end times midair. I like that. And I like that. So, we've kind of set the table. Hopefully we're able to see how we can hold different views. Some of us probably didn't know there were other views. And probably heard, my guess is, premillennialism their entire life and didn't realize that there are other schools of thought held by God-fearing, gospel-believing brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we laid the table, and now when we get to Mark 13, we have to ask one big, big, big question. When we get to Mark 13, is Jesus talking about the end of the world at all? We have words like tribulation. We have phrases like the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Is Jesus talking about the end of the world? Everyone must determine, we come into Mark 13, every one of us must determine which passages, which verses, which thoughts in Mark 13 are about the destruction of the temple and which thoughts, if any, are about the end times. And Jesus' second coming. And we could take two views of this. The futurist view says, yes, Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, sure. But he's also talking about a future event when he will return. That's the futurist view. A preterist view says, no, Jesus was just talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And although your other premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, those things might inform your decision on how to interpret Mark 13, any one of those views can hold a futurist view or a preterist view. And so, now, are you ready to dive into the passage? Everybody take a deep breath. One, two, three. Okay, you made it this far. You made it this far. We're going we're gonna to get there together. Okay. So what I want to do, and you have the right and the freedom to disagree with me on every single one of these points, and that's okay. I'd rather, you know, 110 people not call, come tell me all at once that you disagree with me, okay? Maybe keep it to yourself, that's okay, but we can disagree about this. I didn't want to be kind of, I felt like I'd be cowardly if I just kind of gave you that overview and said, figure it out for yourself. I'm going to tell you what I find compelling. Is that fair? All right. And again, I reserve the right to change my opinion midair. I reserve the right to change my opinion by the end of this sermon. I reserve the right to change my opinion tomorrow. And I hold the same for you, okay? So what I find compelling in my study of Mark 13 is the preterist view that Jesus is not talking about the end times in Mark 13. He is talking about the destruction of the temple. And I think the big takeaway from Mark 13 is this. How can a man know these events are coming if he is not the Son of God. I think the details that we reveal here are unbelievable and show that Jesus is the Son of God. He is who he says he is. And so what we're going to do with the rest of our time together, the rest of our time together, we're going to walk through Mark chapter 13, and we're going to talk about the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and we're going to see how amazing Jesus is in his prophecy. Sound good? All right. We're going to take this chunk by chunk. Let's start with verse 1. It's a good place to start in a chapter. Verse 1 to 4. And then we're going to talk about it. It goes like this. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, 
Do you not see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Okay. The first thing to see about Jesus and his magnificent prophecy is that everything that Jesus said happens. Jesus is about 33 years old. Our calendar starts at zero with Jesus' birth, so this is about 30 to 33 A.D. And what we know is about 40 years in the future from this point, the Jews will rise up and rebel against the Romans, and the Romans will come in, lay siege to Jerusalem, and totally destroy the city. Not one stone will be on top of another. What we know is there was this really interesting guy named Josephus. He was a big part of this rebellion. He was a general. He was a Jewish general. He led the defense of a city in, in Judea. And as the Romans came into his city, he was a pretty smart guy. And so he put up a good defense, and they were really brave in his city. But the Romans ended up taking over the city and slaughtering 40,000 Jews of his city. Only one or two people survived, and this guy Josephus, the general, survived. He was hiding in a well, and they grabbed him. And the Romans were so impressed by him that they said, we want you to come with us. And so Josephus gives us an inside view into what happens in the Jewish revolt and in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And what Josephus records is that the Roman general Titus came through the city of Jerusalem and ordered every single stone of the temple to be pulled down. Just as Jesus prophesied. Who is this man? Who is this man that can know these things? And so, as we might, this we come to they come to Jesus and they scared and worried and because they're I mean they're living in Jerusalem. Peter is going to be the elder of the church in Jerusalem. They're going to be there. They're going to say, Jesus, when will these things happen? This is a big deal. Can you give us some more insight? And so Jesus starts to tell them what will be signs and what won't be signs for this happening. Let's read verse 5 together, 5 and 6. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Leading up to 70 AD is the same thing that we've had all throughout Israel's history. False messiahs and false prophets spring up. Coming and declaring, I am the Messiah. Get your swords, get your shields. I'm the Messiah. Let's kick the Romans out. We've heard this in Mark. That's how the crowds approach Jesus, isn't it? That's how the disciples approach Jesus. Saying, Jesus, is now the time you're going to kick the Romans out. Messiah Jesus. We see the crowds wanting Jesus to be the Rambo Messiah. When Jesus feeds 5,000 out of his hands, out of nothing, the crowd sees him as the promised Rambo Messiah. And you know what Mark tells us? They want to make Jesus king by force. And Jesus has to escape. They're in a frenzy. The Jewish people are looking for this guy to come wield an M16 and mow the Romans down. And Jesus says, you want to know when these things will happen? Don't be fooled. Many people are going to rise up and say, I'm the Messiah. Come follow me. Get your swords. Come follow me. Let's do it. He says, you do not be deceived. That's not me. You follow me. Verses 7 and 8. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. 
This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. For the next 40 years, Israel was like every other place in the world. There's rumors of wars. There are earthquakes. There are famines, just like every other place. And what are we tempted to do? We do this now, don't we? How many of us have said, man, COVID has got to be a sign of the end times? Have you thought that? Yeah. I don't think it's a bad thing to think, but that's what they were thinking too. Jesus says, I know you. I know my people. I know humanity. You're going to hear these things and you're going to say, surely the time for the destruction of Jerusalem is happening now. Surely the end of the age, the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem is happening now. He says, but these things will happen. They don't mean that the time, the destruction of the temple and everything you hold dear, doesn't mean that time has come. Verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to the trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, it is true of all Christians that the world will hate us. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. But it is particularly true to these four gentlemen and their upcoming church. We know for a fact, Jesus says, you're going to be pulled before synagogues, you're going to be beaten. We know for a fact. The book of Acts says that's exactly what happened to Peter. He was pulled into a synagogue, quit teaching that we killed Jesus, and he rose again. Quit teaching about Jesus. Peter says, I've got to. What do you mean? I can't. It's like saying, I'm telling a bird not to fly, a fish not to swim. I've got to tell. So they beat him and threw him out of the synagogue, and Peter went away rejoicing that he was counted worthy to suffer for the gospel. What does Jesus do? In his pastoral heart, he sees and knows that Peter's going to be beaten to a pulp for the gospel. And he says, this is going to happen. Before the destruction of the temple. Before the destruction of everything that you hold dear. He says things like this. Jesus prophesies things like this. How may, I mean, just, who is this man? who can know the future to such precision, he will say, and you, my followers, you'll be put before kings. And then we have a few years later, we have in the book of Acts, Paul, an angel said to Paul, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. Who is this man? Who is this man? Jesus says, before the end of the age, before the temple is destroyed, before everything you know is destroyed, you are going to endure persecution. And Peter tells his church that, his church in Jerusalem. He tells messages like this to other churches. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Who is he writing this to? He's writing this to churches in places like Jerusalem. He's writing this to places that were going to be torn down in just a handful of decades to Christians who are under persecution. He says, hold fast. Christ's glory will be revealed. Do not act like your suffering is, there's a glitch in the system. 
But what is possibly in the back of Peter's mind? Jesus' prophecy. You will be persecuted for the gospel. Now, verse 10 might have stuck out to you. See verse 10? And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Well, pastor, if this is all about what happens to Jerusalem in 70 AD, how do we, how do you, how does that view explain that? Now, again, what did we say at the beginning, right? Every one of these views has strengths and weaknesses. How do we explain that? Well, we know that the early Christians considered the gospel to have gone out to all the nations. Romans 1.8, Paul tells us this. For, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the world. Throughout the whole world. He'll tell the church in Colossae this. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So when he, when he uses in verse 10, when he uses the gospel has been proclaimed, first the gospel has been proclaimed to all the nations. It seems that he could be talking about Pentecost. Do you remember Pentecost? Where the Holy Spirit gave the gift of speaking in different languages to the early Christians and Pentecost, all these Jews from all around the world came and they heard in their own language the good news about Jesus. It was proclaimed to the nations. 70 AD is after Paul went on his missionary journey and how the gospel spread from 500 people to thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. Gospel preached to all the nations. And then verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let not the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Abomination of desolation. This is, a, this is a, a term we get from the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 9 talks about, it says this, And on the wings of the abominations shall come one who makes desolate. And what we think that this, this talks about is Daniel is prophesying about a, a, the, a Seleucid king that will come into Jerusalem to suppress a Jewish rebellion and he forces his way into the temple and he stops regular sacrifices and he sets up an idol to Zeus and offers swine sacrifices in the temple. This is an abomination of desolation according to Daniel. And Jesus says something similar will happen. He says the abomination of desolation will be your signal that this Terrible event, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is coming when you see the abomination of desolation. What seems to be the case, what seems to be the connection is the Roman general Titus after, after, after killing countless Jews, storming his way into the temple before every stone was turned over. He entered the temple. He entered the holy places and he took things like the sacred lampstand. And Titus set up the Roman cult standards, those big eagles. You might have seen them in movies. Those big things that they hold, like flags that have eagles on top for the worship of the emperor, for the empire. He set those up in the temple. And they worshipped the image of the emperor and offered sacrifices to the emperor. And so Jesus seems to be saying this, when you see these things, when you see Rome in the temple, you leave, flee, run. Whoever's in Judea, run. He says, go so quickly, if you're on your roof, they used to, they used to uh, relax on their roof. If you see, if you're on your roof, you're, the siege is happening or the Roman army's coming, something signals, you say the abomination, he's coming. When you see these things take place, don't even run down and get in your house and get your things. Run down and leave. 
If you're out in the field and you see the Roman army coming, you see these things taking place, don't go get your cloak. Leave. Flee. And what's amazing, again, who is this man, Jesus, who can know these things? What's amazing is historians tell us that Rome came in and killed a million Jews. But you know who they didn't kill? Christians. Do you know why? The Christian community, the historian tells us this, the Christian community was warned in a prophecy to flee. And they fled to a city called Pella. And they were saved. Is that not unbelievable? Who is this man, Jesus, who knows such things? Verse 17. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter. For those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation of that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord has not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Jesus' statement about 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, being so terrible is not an overstatement. One historian talks about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem this way. He says, there have been greater numbers of deaths, but never so high a percentage of a city's population so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. The destruction of Jerusalem and the slaughter of its inhabitants were so total that for the next 50 plus years, only the Roman army stayed and could be found in Jerusalem. Not another soul. Josephus describes the siege of Jerusalem as one of the most terrible things that ever happened to the world. The, the inhabitants of Jerusalem had to result to cannibalism. And as Jesus says, woe to the mothers, the nursing mothers, Josephus records an awful event of a mother who is dying of starvation, cannibalizing her child. Verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Jesus is using language directly from the Old Testament, prophesy, prophecies about the destruction of Babylon. It goes like this. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and destroy it, its sinners from it. You ready? For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will not be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Jesus says when the tribulation happens, when these things are coming, it is the sign that, that God's judgment is coming down on Jerusalem just as God's judgment came down on Babylon. And he describes it as such a momentous, monumentous event. It's like the stars themselves falling and the sun not giving light. That is how monumental this event is. That God is no longer reaching the nations through the temple or through the people of Israel. He is now reaching the nations through the church, through Gentiles. It says the stars will fall, the sun will stop shining, the moon will stop shining, and the Son of Man will come in clouds, and He will gather His people from the corners of the world. Who's that? That's you and me, non-Jews. He's gathering us now. Isn't that good news? Good news. The Son of Man coming in the clouds is another reference to Daniel. 
Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. He came to God the Father and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. What's Jesus saying? Just as Daniel prophesies, I will be coming in the clouds, where? To the Father. To the Father. To the Ancient of Days. And will be given all the nations. Will be given you and me. And finally, and finally, well, not finally. This is too good. So, Josephus, not a Christian, historian, watching all this take place, after hearing what Jesus says about the Son of Man coming on the clouds, Josephus records this event. Listen to this. Besides these, a few days after that feast, on the one and twentieth day of the month, during the siege, a certain incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem like a fable, like a fairy tale, were it not told to me by those who saw it. And were not the events that followed it of such considerable na nature as to deserve such signals. For what they saw, people of Israel in Jerusalem, what they saw before the sun setting, they saw chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running around among the clouds. Now, Josephus is not the word of God. But isn't that amazing? And then as this event signals the end of the, the Jewish age and the beginning of the church age, Josephus says that the priests in the temple during this time, as they were going about their, their, daily, um, their daily ministry during the siege, they felt a quaking in the temple. And they heard a great noise. And after that, they heard the sound as of a great multitude saying, as if it's the presence of God saying, let us leave this place. Isn't that unbelievable? Again, not the gospel, but just really interesting. And then, how do we end this? Verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So the number one reason that I believe that these things are talking about the destruction of the temple and Jesus is not talking about the end times is in that verse there. You see what he says? 30 again. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now again, every view has strengths, every view has weaknesses. That is the most compelling thing to me. A biblical generation is defined as 40 years. We're talking 30 to 33 AD. Jesus is saying this. And the destruction of the temple is exactly 40 years from then. So, I love how we're going to end this. Lest we think, we figured it out. Our pastor is just so smart. He did it. We got it all. Let's, we, we're good. We're good. Lest we get on our high horse, Jesus ends by saying, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. If they didn't know from that side, if, should we believe that we've got it all figured out from this side? No. But you know what we do have figured out? Jesus is coming back. You know what we do have figured out? Only the Son of God can say that these things will happen, and they do happen. That unbelievable. Worship team, will you join me up here? Let me urge you.
I pray. I know this was different. I know this was weird. I know this was hard. I know this was a lot to chew on. But my prayer is, if you don't know Jesus, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit opened your heart, that you could see the prophecy that Jesus made and see these things take place. And the only explanation is that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God. And I hope you see clearly that Jesus, the destruction of the temple signified that, that that way of doing things with God is over. The temple and the sacrifices, all that stuff is finished. That we can now be right with God by faith through Jesus Christ alone. How great is that? All that's done. All we need is Jesus. All we need is Jesus. And he came and he says, you can have me. You can have me. And you don't need to cling to the temple. You don't need to cling to some sacrifices. You can have me. And this is how you can have me. This is how you can be with me. This is how you can inherit the, the kingdom of God, the new heaven, new earth, where there will be no crying, no pain, no suffering ever. This is how you can inherit it. Trust me. Trust that I, on the cross, have paid the final sacrifice. We don't need a temple. The Son of God made the perfect sacrifice. And believe that if you trust in Him, you will be right with God. Make that decision today. Jesus could come back at the end of this sentence. Even if He doesn't. Even if we're around for another 2,000 years. You know what? You're not going to be around for 2,000 years. Make the decision to follow Jesus today. Would you stand and let's sing our final song together?